Thank you all. Wonderful. So in the past weeks, we have looked at Jesus' promises in 1 Corinthians 15 to us and to his disciples about resurrection, a reminder to us that if Jesus says something, if he says he will do something in your life, he will do it. We've talked about the proofs that Jesus gave and that we see in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus was bodily raised and we should take confidence in that, but ultimately it's our lives that is the greatest proof to the people around us that Jesus is alive, that you and I know the one who is the resurrection and the life. And then we talked about the great assurance and hope that we can have because there is a glory in heaven waiting for us. And last week we talked about the change that can happen in our lives because we know the resurrection. Because of resurrection, you and I do not have to be the same. And now this passage today says, and by the way, when we get to heaven, there's going to be a big change too. Verse 51, the verse right after our passage this morning kind of hinted at that. There is a change that is coming. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. If you have your Bibles or your phones or tablets, we're in 1 Corinthians 15. There, there isn't much, if, we, if we're honest with each other, there isn't much that we can say about that day, about glory. The Bible really doesn't talk much about heaven. You might have a gate of pearl. You might have a, a street. You might have... There's really not that much as, if we think about it. And that's kind of the preacher joke. Two people go up to heaven, right? And you meet St. Peter at the gate. It's, it's, it's a lot of books are about heaven. There's a lot of guesses about heaven. But it's hard to describe something that really is indescribable. I love how Tom Oden, one of the great Wesleyan theologians of all time, who's written words that I cannot pronounce, cannot read, this brainiac of a man said, here's, what, here's, here's the thing about heaven. It's on a need to know. It really is, that we can't get it. We have some pictures of it. We have some guesses of it, but we really don't know. Maybe it's no wonder that the Christian band, Mercy Me, just says, all we can do is imagine. And I imagine what that day will be like. Uh, will I, what will my heart feel? Will I dance? Will I be still? To my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to even sing at all? I can only imagine. And we're left wondering. We have that confidence assurance that it's waiting for us. But here at least Paul is spelling out some things for us about what that will be like. Do we eat in heaven? Does anybody know? What Somebody said, we better. Yeah, I heard you Methodists loud and clear. One of the last pictures we get in the book of Revelation is the wedding supper, the marriage feast of the Lamb of God. What age will you be in heaven? Theologians have fought about that for centuries. At least Paul is giving us some good general reminders here that ought to encourage us in our faith. Maybe more we should talk about what's not going to be there. What would it be like to have no temptation whatsoever? What would it be like to be with God himself and to be in a place that he's created for us and we never have to worry anymore? You've been under the crushing weight of worry, uh, the struggle with envy, 
the pressure to fulfill one more responsibility and check another thing off your list. Um, there's going to be no more fear in that place. What a gift. And ultimately, the enemy, death itself, will be defeated. There will be no more death. And by the way, if you're a hunter or if you're a wife or a husband of a hunter, let them hunt. Give them some time for that because there's no death in heaven. I mean, the best you can probably hope for is cow tipping. I mean, that's the best we're going to get. All those guesses. I love what uh, uh, church father, John Wesley quotes a church father named Wolebius. Parents, please be more careful in naming your children. But here's what Wolebius says about heaven. There will be understanding without error, joy without sorrow, pleasure without pain, memory without forgetfulness. Now the most wonderful thing is we'll be face to face with our Savior, that God himself will be in our midst. But Paul's saying to the church, you're going to be raised up. And let me tell you something about your bodies. He doesn't give us the full picture, but in verse 40 and in verse 43, just like Jesus ends the Lord's prayer as we pray the Lord's prayer, Paul says that which is raised up will be full of glory and it will be raised full of power. So this morning together, I want us to look at three things about what we see about this change that will be in our bodies in glory. First, you see it in verse, verse 45 and elsewhere. We notice that there is a contrast. There is a hard contrast about what has been and what will be. He does some of that contrast work talking about the first Adam and the last Adam. Talking about Adam and Jesus. About the one who was earthly and the one who is heavenly. But he also uses words like natural and spiritual. Corruption, incorruption, dishonor, glory. The emphasis is that there will be a change. Some of you may have saw this on Facebook this week, but my wife's birthday, our anniversary was early in the week, and then uh, uh, her birthday was on uh, Thursday or Friday. I got it right on the day. Uh, the day before her birthday, we got to go out to eat with her parents, the first time they've been able to go out to eat since the pandemic. We had a birthday dinner and then I took her shopping, and she wanted to go see a movie. But as we debated the movie, she just couldn't come up with the movie that was out right now to watch. She says, you just pick it. I went for it. They re-released the three-hour Fellowship of the Ring movie. This is the day before my wife's uh, birthday. I mean, this is, this is a serious husband move to say, well, I know it's your birthday, but let's do the three-hour dude movie. And she said, Yes. And we did the three-hour Fellowship of the Ring movie. It was glorious. I was so proud of myself. I couldn't wait to call my boys the next day and say, hey, look what I pulled off. But then the next day, Sarah said to me, you know, I still feel like a movie. Why don't we watch Downton Abbey at home? My wife is a mastermind. I think it was all a ruse. I was taken. I got my Lord of the Rings, so she, she knew she wouldn't get Downton Abbey, but she got Downton Abbey. If you've watched that, program and that movie Downton Abbey, you know it's a, a much slower pace to life where technology advances in terms of years, not like us where it seems like every day there's something new. 
And it reminded me, when I was watching that movie, it reminded me of a preacher's story about a family who had come to the big town for the first time. And this was back a century ago. They had never seen electricity, let alone some of the gadgets that the big town had. And they were staying at a fancy hotel and were just mesmerized by all that was there. They went up to the rooms unpacked. But later in the day, the mom and the son walked down the steps to the lobby to get some things. And when they did, they noticed by the lobby and by the front desk, there was this door. A door that opened in the middle. You couldn't open it yourself, but it just had this split down the middle and these numbers above it. They'd never seen or heard anything like that. Well, eventually, that door opened, and a man who was standing beside them, probably a 98-year-old guy on a walker, feebly walked to that door, went inside of it, and the door shut. And about three to four minutes later, those doors opened again, and this young, vibrant, very good-looking man walked out. And the mother said to her son, go get your father. She thought that room, that, that, that room would change him. It was just an elevator, but she thought it would change him. There will be a change. There will be a radical change. Paul's saying that to this church. God in his goodness is going to do a work in you. That which is in corruption, he's, he's going to make incorruptible. Guys love to talk about their scars. I could talk about the physical scars just on my face from being the tallest kid in class, which also meant I was the most uncoordinated kid in class, and at three and four, just walking into tables and chairs. I've got scars on my face just from that. I've got an incredible scar on my knee from a car wreck my sophomore year. I've got a scar right here on my lip from church league basketball where a six-foot-ten guy put his elbow uh, through my lip and my teeth came out. Um, I've also, I've told you this story before, but I actually as a child got shot by an arrow. It's a long story. See me afterwards. But I've got a nice little scar here from that. Guys love to say, look at the physical scars. They've been painful. And many of us have had, had real struggles in our physical bodies and are scarred by that. But the deeper scars so many times are emotional. Betrayal from a friend or even a family member. Hurts or disappointments that have happened in your life. We don't show those off a lot. We bury them down deep and sadly they stay with us and too often control us. But the worst of all are the spiritual scars. And sadly we never let anybody see those. Those times where we have failed our Lord, where we have purposely chosen our own way, and now we live in that shame. We live in that hurt. And Paul is saying to the church, church, there's going to be a transformation. All of that stuff is going to be transformed, redeemed, and you're going to be free of it. The only hint of any scarring and glory will be the Savior who told Thomas, do you want to touch my side? That gift in glory seems to be revealed forever for his glory, the one who bore the cross for us. But you and I will be made free through the transforming power of the resurrection and the life. Everything. Not just our, our bodies will be changed, but our temperaments, our minds, our scars all will, because of what Christ has won at the cross and resurrection, 
there is a sharp contrast of what will be. But there's not just a contrast. Verse 42 and elsewhere we see there is a continuity. Things will be different, yes. There will be a contrast. Things are going to be better, but it's still you. There's something beautiful about that. There's, that's something other faiths never get about the glory that God has gifted to us. And he says it in Scripture. He's given to us the body that he wanted us to have. And so he's going to take up that body in glory. Uh, he'll be bringing together our soul and our body. I like what Church Father Origen said. It is not one body in, lowly, in lowliness and then a different one. Hereafter, So you have one in lowliness, but then in, in glory we'll get our real bodies. He says, no, it is the same body transformed. Y'all, we don't become angels. We don't sit on clouds. We don't become all shiny. We become what God intended from the beginning, perfectly with him when we were in Eden, brought back to fullness with God. There is a continuity. There's, there's a contrast, but it's still us. But then Paul says, as you read the whole letter, you see it here, but you see his concern throughout the entire letter to uh, the Corinthians. Not only is there a contrast, not only is there a continuity, but there's a reminder, too, that your body counts. What you do in your body matters. It counts to God, And you see him making that, uh, that, that argument throughout this entire book. He actually uses the word body three times, more than three times uh, more than any other book in the entire Bible. I think 37 to 40 times he uses it. And I think the next usage of the word body in any, any other book is like 11 Paul is talking about the body, the body, the body, and he's trying to impress upon the church, we're a part of a body. That's why I'm so pleased to see you. We have to be a part of the body with our spiritual giftedness, with our life together to rightly celebrate communion. He's making that argument all throughout this letter. You and I are a part of the body. Can the eye say to the foot, no, it can't. We need everyone. But also he's making this argument through throughout this letter to a church that is struggling in many ways to live out a transformed life in and through their body. Their body counts. Their body matters. And so he says to them in 1 Corinthians 6, 20, glorify God in your body. And again, it, it shows us again how important our body is from not just the creation account, but here in verse 38, God's gifted to you the body he wants you to have, but now he wants you to treat it, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, as the very temple of God. You house the third person of the Holy Trinity, and so what you do with that temple matters. In terms of your, spirit, uh, your stewardship of that body, in terms of the way you live out your holiness through that body, you are the temple. Honor God with your body. It was another church in another city, but I had the opportunity to minister uh, to someone who had come to the church looking for help. She was talking about her daughter, uh, and they needed some help with food and gas to help with her daughter. 
So I tried to get more of her story as we went to get her food and gas, and she began to talk about the way she had abused her body, what she had put into her body in terms of narcotics, about how she had just come from selling that body to support her and her boyfriend who were living in a way in which she was in some sense misusing his body. And so I told her, I said, let me tell you about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And she listened. But I wanted to tell her, God's made you. He's put you together. That's what Paul says here. He's given you that body. God himself. And he also wants you to use that body for his glory. He can, as you see it here in our passage, he can transform anything. But he can transform your life. Forgive you for where you've been and change you. And our church would love to help you with that. She says, no, no, I just need to get this for my daughter and we'll be fine. I just am worried about her. So I got her food, I got her gas, and I said, well, I'd, I'd love to talk with you if, if you would. And here's what I realized as they sped off. She didn't just care, not care, about her body. And ultimately, she didn't really care about her boyfriend's body. But as they sped off, that daughter that she was so worried about was sitting in her lap, unrestrained. She didn't care about her daughter's body either. That's the culture to which Paul was writing. They, they, that Greco-Roman influence of the flesh doesn't matter. All that matters is your soul and mind. Do whatever you want with your body. This is the goodness of God. Every part of you matters to him. Your mind, your heart, your soul, and your body. Your body counts. And so Paul is saying to this church, use your body, this temple of God, for godly purposes. Now, you and I know that so much of this, when he's making some of these arguments, it has to do with sexual sin. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 6, sexual sin is a sin against your own body. So don't be caught in that sin. But really, y'all, hear me now, it's all sin. It's a reminder to us to what God not only will do one day to transform our bodies, to reclaim them and free them from worry and physical struggle and death, but also a reminder of what he can do now, that our bodies count now. And you you can't miss that with Paul. And we can't miss it in Lent. As it's a time of reflection, it's a time of repentance, Lord, Have I given you this temple? Am I using this temple? And there's a variety of of things we could hear from the Lord on that. but, But am I using this temple as you've called me to use it? Is it yours or is it mine? How do you and I need to hear that this morning and respond to that? Because on today, Palm Sunday we remember that the incarnate one, Jesus Christ, purposefully, intentionally made his way into the holy city of Jerusalem. In lowly fashion, in lowly fashion, he makes his way there so that he might give his body away for us. That he might experience death, that you and I might no longer experience death. Death, that he might experience humiliation so that our humiliation, our emotional scars, our spiritual scars will be cast away. 
our sins will be cast away because of what he won on his cross and through his resurrection. I love how the hymn writer Charles Wesley says it. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free. He came in fleshed and gave that body, which he lived perfectly through, as a perfect sacrifice for us. Or as the, a, a modern hymn says, uh, or, or a hymn says, O love divine, what hast thou done? The immortal God has died for me. The Father's co-eternal Son bore all my sins upon the tree. The immortal God has died for me. My Lord, my love is crucified. There's a story of a, of a young mother who had received horrible news of her terminal illness that it was not going to relent. And the doctor who had come to her home to tell her this news let her know, let her know by saying simply, you're not going to make it through this season. Uh, you're not going to make it through the autumn. You just won't make it through the fall, and you and your family need to know that. What she didn't know, what the doctor didn't know, is that their young daughter, about four or five years old, was passing by the room when he said that to her. And hours later, the mother would look outside her window, and she realized that the daughter had heard that conversation when the daughter had taken some scotch tape outside, and she was taping leaves back onto the trees. Hold this back. This is the week where we remember and celebrate our Savior held nothing back. John says, knowing that his hour had come, he walks into the city so that he might give himself away for us. Gifting to us his body that we might have life in our bodies. That our lives might be transformed someday. It'll be different, but it'll also be the same, but it'll be different. But also so that you and I might experience that transformation even now. Praise be to our Savior Jesus, who walked into Jerusalem for us so that you and I might experience a great salvation someday, but even today. Let's pray about that. Father, we, we bow our hearts before you in praise of your Son, who stepped out of heaven and assumed human flesh so that he might give himself for us. This day and this week, we pray, would be holy that it would be a week and a time of praising him, of, of deepening our prayer life and our worship life, of seeing more of the great gift that was given to us on Calvary and also through his resurrection. Father, we also pray for our response to this word. We thank you for the hope that we have that you will change things. You will transform things. You will heal our hurts and that things will be made right in glory. We also thank you that our bodies matter to you, that you've gifted to us the bodies you wanted us to have, and that you've given us this call of stewardship through your servant Paul. And I, I pray, Father, that you would bless our response, especially in this week, 
where we see how Jesus, through all of his life, lived perfectly in his body, that we might also allow our bodies to be a sacrifice of praise to what he has won for us, for what he has done for us. Thank you for this, your word. Bless now our response to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.